Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, an important interview, an important conversation with a friend of this show, David Malpass, of course, with more than a decade of service to uh, what we've done at Bloomberg Surveillance and Wisdom and Perspective and now holding court at the World Bank as their president. David, I know you never thought you would see the challenges of this pandemic. I talk of the pandemic partition of, say, American inequalities. Tell us the World Bank's pandemic partition. What does it look like? Uh, it's it's the same or worse uh, for developing countries and for poor countries. That takes two. The inequality is is two kind of different factors. One is poor people are 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 worse hit by the global recession, the shutdowns, uh, and and the pandemic <sighs> itself. So they they feel the brunt of that. Uh, and then the second part is that the advanced economies have been doing stimulus programs uh, that cut that concentrate uh, on on people that already have assets. That's the central bank purchases, but it's also the fiscal stimulus from the from the Treasury Department. Uh, David, the focus of the World Bank for years has been on what I would call a third world, a frontier economy. I know those are not correct phrases uh, in 2021. One of the great issues we have is accountability of cases, deaths and hospitalizations across uh, Africa. Explain the pandemic for Africa right now and the veracity of your data at the World Bank. You know, this is a this is a cloudy area, Tom. The the uh, the death statistics aren't aren't uh, that uh, well kept and aren't that current, and so it's hard to tell how hard COVID is hitting people in Africa. The the original in the in the middle of 2020, there was the the sense that it wasn't hitting as hard. It's different country by country. For example, South Africa has been hard hit, uh, but uh, uh, other countries seeming to be less. So, but now our sense is that it's that it's spreading and hitting hitting all countries. What we want to do on vaccines uh, is uh, have vaccines available for everyone, uh, including and especially the poor. And so that's that's one of the challenges to have systems that can actually deliver enough vaccines. That's exactly where I wanted to go, especially given some of the delays that we've seen in the developed world. How worried are you about the time frame for distributing the vaccine in the developing world? Hi, Lisa. What, what the World Bank has done, we, we passed in October a $12 billion package uh, through the board uh, and that's available. And our, the first step is to assess countries and see what they need in terms of a cold chain, in terms of uh, identifying the people that need the vaccine the most. So that work is underway in 100 countries. Uh, and then the next step is actual contracts. One of the challenges is to have a common contract uh, where people can uh, where people can see the the, uh, uh, the 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 same terms and and actually operate on them uh, and so we're working on that and then another uh, another immediate problem is indemnification Pfizer has been hesitant to go into some of the countries because of the uh, uh, liability um, problems or they don't have a liability shield so we work with the countries to try to do that but I think also some of the other vaccine manufacturers may be able to uh, go into 
into countries because they're operating through subsidiaries. This is all something that we're exploring. And our goal, my goal, is to have vaccines available for people throughout the developing world based on what their countries decide. We've got financing available, uh, but the, the, the countries need to choose systems and then begin buying or, or receiving the vaccines. We're speaking with David Malpass, World Bank president. David, uh, you talk about how the programs that have salvaged the global economy have really benefited the wealthiest individuals who have assets, not so much people at the bottom. And this has to do with the economies as well. How worried are you about the overhang of debt in the emerging world as we do get this ongoing economic pain without a vaccine distribution model that seems to be uh, taking course quickly enough for many people's tastes? Uh, it's it's challenging to keep private sectors open. What we've tried to do through the IFC, the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank, is to provide working capital uh, and trade finance so that the private sectors that do operate in poor countries uh, can continue to uh, to to operate. <clears throat> But a challenge in the world, in it, with given that interest rates are low for a long period of time, and that's being accomplished in part by uh, by borrowing short term and having the governments invest long term. Think think about that. The 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 central banks borrow overnight money and put it into long term bonds. That disadvantages the small businesses mm -hmm. because they need that money. The overnight money is what they live on in terms of working capital. Capital. Uh, and so it's not just in the developing world, but in the advanced economies, the, uh, the dichotomy, the inequality that comes out of that is a big challenge because you're losing the small business sector of the world. David Malpass, I've got to digress to U.S. politics. You were, of course, provided public service to the nation working for President Trump. I believe now there's going to be a new relationship of your World Bank and President Biden, of course, the International Monetary Fund, Kitty Corner to you there, uh, to the west of the White House. David Malpass, how do you adapt, adjust, or you're oblivious to a new U.S. administration? Uh, not oblivious. Uh, the U.S. is our biggest shareholder, so we're very aware of what their their interests and goals are, as we are of other countries, the developing countries included. You know, we one of the big voices within the World Bank is the voice of the developing countries through our board of directors. So we listen to all parties, and we've been successful in the past in working across the aisle in 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 all of the major uh, shareholders. So I expect that to continue. One area that uh, uh, that where where the U.S. I think will be supportive uh, of the uh, of the uh, climate uh, policies of the World Bank. You know, the World Bank is the biggest uh, fin uh, international financier of of climate uh, change uh, activities. For example, in the poorer nations, they need to adapt uh, to to climate changes, uh, and and w we we put a lot of funding into that. So I think we'll see strong support from the U.S. on that kind of uh, agenda as well. So I'm looking forward to working with the new uh, with the new administration. Uh, but we're we're non-political, so uh, we we I, I want to see people in developing countries do better. That's the that's the goal and the mission. Well, when you talk about being apolitical, it still puts you into a somewhat sensitive place a lot of the time. And I'm thinking of some of your comments about China and how they hadn't been aggressive enough, in your view, with debt relief for poor nations. 
given their primary role over the past few years, extending debt to these countries. Do you feel like they have gotten better with debt relief? Has your view changed at all over the recent months? Uh, th well, they've been uh, changing, um, and, and they're a full participant in the G20, the group of 20 uh, major economies. And so during 2020, uh, I was happy to see, you, you know, I, I went forward along with Kristalina at the uh, IMF uh, with the idea that there should be uh, a moratorium on the payments by the poorest countries to their creditors, the official bilateral creditors, of which China is the largest, mm -hmm. and also the private sector creditors. So China... Uh, subscribe to that and and uh, is is uh, trying to move in that direction. So I don't see that there'll be a change in that. I think the big countries want to find a way to uh, work on this debt overhang. It's 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 uh, it, right. it, it, it's very worrisome because it's hard to invest into a poor country if uh, that if so much of their resources are having to go to right. repay past debt. David Malpass, folks has one of the most famous charts in the history of everything I've done, and that is gold and yen terms. We're not going to ask him for a market call as president of the World Bank, but I am, David, going to link it into your knowledge at the World Bank about the commodity nations. Can you call a turn for the beleaguered commodity nations? Are they finally going to see a bid on their various commodities? Tom, this is a court, you know, we have our new global economic prospects report that just came out yesterday. So we addressed the, some of the, some of the outlook or the forecast. Uh, but w one of the, one of the unknowns, I think, is as the central banks have uh, created stimulus, what, what's the mechanism for that? You know, my view is it, ha it is not money printing that they're doing. What they're doing is buying duration. So they, they borrow short term and buy long term assets. That by itself is not inflationary. Uh, and the, the forecasts that people have of the inflation outlook still don't show that there would be inflation. So uh, I'm a concern for commodity producers is they do better in a red hot world you know where there's yep. where there's uh, inflationary pressures uh, and right now I'm I'm worried about uh, or my I, th I think the bigger challenge is to get enough GDP growth meaning nominal nominal supply the production side of the global economy <clears throat> up and running and recovering yeah we're going to end this interview because I'm going to ask David Malpass for a renminbi call, and he's going to, his people are going to be very <laughs> no. upset. David Malpass, thank you so much. He is president of the World Bank in this changing world. You're expecting 2% inflation over the next 10 years to get 1% for a 10-year Treasury. You're losing money in real terms, Tom, and that is the conundrum. The other conundrum is, is this a head fake, the move that we're seeing today, both in Treasury yields and beyond? And Mark Cabana has been covering all things rates, Bank of America, Global Research, head of U.S. rate strategy. Mark, I'd love your sense of that. In other words, yields have kind of peaked out here and could be headed lower as people reassess the enthusiasm about faster growth and more stimulus. They could, but what we anticipate is that rates will gradually rise to around 1.5% by the end of this year. Now, we had assumed that even with the base case of a divided government. 
if the Democrats do end up winning both of these Georgia seats, to us, that raises the risks that you see the rate repricing occur a little bit faster and potentially higher than we anticipate. Now, there's a number of headwinds in the near term. COVID is going to restrain economic activity in Q1. But we do anticipate that as the vaccine is rolled out and as global growth and U.S. growth picks up, you're going to see long-end rates reprice higher. And importantly, we think that this long-end rate repricing will be due to, quote-unquote, healthy factors, i.e. better growth, higher inflation expectations as the economy recovers. And if the Democrats win both of these Georgia seats, it naturally means more fiscal stimulus and likely higher deficits as well. How high can Treasury yields go before the Fed steps in? So we think that it's less about a level and it's more about the set of conditions that's pushing rates higher. If you see this, again, quote unquote, healthy rate repricing, where you see higher break evens, where you see stable to uh, higher risk asset prices, a stable to weaker dollar, there's no real level that we think the Fed is going to grow uncomfortable with. However, if you see this rate move that is in a, a liquid move or it's due to concerns over too much treasury supply, that's when the Fed will step in. And just as you and Tom were talking about, we think that it's really all about the distribution between break-evens and real rates. If rates are rising because break-evens are widening, the Fed is going to see that as a generally healthy move, and they're not going to step in and offset it. Now, if you saw rates really quickly move to 1.5%, that would probably be a bit more than the economy can handle at present, and the Fed would need to offset that. But if it's a more gradual move, then we think that the Fed will likely tolerate and, you know, in fact, embrace the move if it's driven by better inflation expectations. Although, Mark, as we're seeing today in the big tech stocks and other stocks that are considered havens or other securities that are riskier that have been bid up in large part because of how low bond yields are, <clears throat> there is a question of whether the Fed will respond to a disruption in financial conditions or, if you want to put it more bluntly, a sell-off in anything uh, and step in or perhaps, uh, you know, try to suppress yields quicker than may other be worthwhile just to keep everything intact and make it look like everyone's happy and still getting gains. Absolutely. So the Fed is looking at financial conditions broadly, and they do not want to see a destabilizing rise in long-term interest rates that causes financial conditions to tighten materially and that causes the economy to slow down. But are they concerned about a couple of percentage points sell-off in tech stocks when they've had such an incredible run? No, not in particular. Would they be concerned if that turned into a 20% correction? Yes. And would they be concerned if there were signs that too high of interest rates were beginning to in the real economy, i.e. slowing down the housing market, um, things of that nature? That's when the Fed would get concerned. But I think that you know, seeing the 10-year yield just above 1% um, does not yet seem to be a level whereby those long-end rates are really beginning to bite in terms of the real economy and broader financial right. conditions. Mark, we're all inured to the bull market in the equity space, whether it's double-digit tech returns, even what we're beginning to see in small cap uh, recovering so nicely. We forget that if I look at Bloomberg Barclays' total return, it's been a persistent bull market of higher price, lower yield in your space. Have we forgotten what a bond bear market is? 
To some extent, yes. Uh, given that you know U.S. interest rates have recently been at historic lows, uh, and the equity market did incredibly well despite the pandemic, and I think that the market is going to have to adjust to the notion that long-end interest rates will be rising. Now, again, we think that this rate rise will not necessarily constrain the economy in a material way if it does the Fed will step in. But I think investors are going to have to get accustomed to the fact that they should expect to see uh, at least the prices of bonds go down to some extent as rates reprice and growth and inflation does pick up over time. We welcome all of you on this historic day in Washington. Mark Cabana of the Bank of America with us uh, here on rates. And we do this with futures red and green in the screen, a little bit better taped than three hours ago. Uh, the yield 1.01%. Uh, Mark Cabana, I want you to talk to savers out there, not the fancy guys like you doing fancy hedging strategies and trying to manage with a higher price, uh, a higher yield, lower price uh, milieu. What does the average person do in fixed income if you're telling me higher yield and lesser price? Yeah, so I think that uh, if you're a saver, what you want to do is that you want to carefully think about uh, extending out the curve, trying to pick up some additional yield based upon your own risk tolerance and your comfort level. Maybe you think about moving into the corporate space more than the government space, uh, but you're going to have to be careful and you're going to have to recognize that you want to leg into this strategy over time because we do anticipate that rates will be slowly rising. Now, if you're an institutional investor, what you want to do is that you probably want to hew a little bit shorter on your overall duration allocation mm -hmm. as do reprice higher. Now, we do think that that it's it's great that we're seeing rates move today, um, given some of the news out of Georgia and the implications that it has for Washington. But we still think that fundamentally, the big rate repricing that we see towards one and a half percent will likely take place in Q2 or later. Again, as the vaccine is rolled out and as we get right. confirmation the economy is indeed recovering. On a price yield basis, the fancy guys talk about duration and the second derivative convexity, which I'm going to call acceleration. Guys like you call it gamma. I don't, Megan, do you know what gamma means? I have no idea what gamma means. How about convexity, Mark Cabana? Uh, what is going to be the accelerative forces as we go through 2001? Uh, well, so as we go through 2021, what we do think that we do think we're going to see again is that sell-off that will likely really accelerate again from Q2 onwards. Q1 is gonna have a very significant headwind from COVID. We don't know how effective uh, the uh, antibody treatments will be to the new strain of the vaccine. We don't know how quickly vaccines will be rolled out. But after that is generally behind us, we do think that rates will need to reprice to the new reality of strong <laughs> fiscal tailwinds and the fact that we're likely going to see the economy operate meaningfully above trend from Q2 through the end of the year. And that, we think, is going to take rates higher. So we do expect to see a more accelerated move yeah. later in the year. And today, it just seems like the market is repricing a bit more to the fact that you need to assign higher odds to a Democratic control of the Senate than you did previously. Mark Abana, thank you so much to the Bank of America. Bloomberg surveillance, folks, on radio, on television, it runs like a Swiss watch. <laughs> and within that, you get lucky when you have guests. John Lieber is with us now with Eurasia Group, Managing Director for the United States, but also expert on policy and international policy for America. Here is the breaking news. On November 12th, the president put out an extensive executive order essentially saying we're not going to do business with China companies because of their linkage to China military. 
To make a long story short, everybody reacted. And then Treasury dropped a bombshell Monday evening and said no. And I mean, literally the sentence, folks, Mm -hmm. was N-O, period. Moments ago, the New York Stock Exchange announced a suspension date for securities of three issuers and proceeds with delisting. John Lieber, it's unfair to catch you like this. This is truly breaking news. What are the ramifications that you see of a strident policy against financial instruments of China in our global and American financial system? The threat here is of retaliation that, you know, the Chinese figure out they don't need American financial markets. And that doesn't seem like that would be obvious right now, but that over time that could certainly develop. And, you know, the U.S. starts missing out on these delistings. Now, on the other hand, this policy some of these companies don't simply don't live up to American standards of transparency, uh, of um, uh, you know, of, of accounting standards, and as a result of that, you know, this this policy is maybe a little bit overdue, and I think would be politically popular if yeah. the Treasury had the will to see it through. If we started with this, with the Democrats and the Republicans, one of the few things are on the same page on, which is a more strident approach to President Xi and Beijing. If that's the reality, do you see at Eurasia Group a Biden-Trump differential off of the strident executive order of President Trump November 12? No. What you'll see is a little bit more process around the Biden administration, a little bit more transparency into the the direction they're heading. And, you know, this rule, this uh, December rule executive order has been criticized for being kind of slapdash or haphazard and and a little bit confusing to follow, which I think is you're seeing now in its implementation. And so I think the Biden people have the opportunity to potentially reframe it or perhaps even withdraw it and then issue it in a new form. And that's all subject going to be a point of subject to negotiations with the Chinese. I think that's an important point to keep in mind about all of everything President Trump has done vis-a-vis China. This is all leverage and negotiating points that President uh, President Biden will be able to use to get concessions out of the Chinese. And he starts in a very strong stance with pretty strict things in place, like 25 percent tariffs. And that can all be negotiated down over time if the Chinese want to do that. And that's really what we don't know right now is how desperate are they to try to undo some of the damage that Trump has done to the trading relationship. So, John, as it relates to the U.S.-China relationship, and now it appears that uh, President-elect Biden may have uh, control of the Senate as well, how do you expect the Biden administration to deal with China vis-a-vis our other allies? Is it, you know, obviously President Trump was kind of America first. How do you expect the President-elect Biden to kind of try to re-engage with uh, other countries around the world as it relates to China? Well, there's an obvious opportunity here for an anti-China coalition, which would probably be more effective in isolating them from the global trading order. That's sort of the approach of the Obama administration. It was the theory behind the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is probably dead. But, you know, for issues like technology security, you're trying to cut Huawei out of networks, you're trying to squeeze the Chinese financial sector, you're trying to gain more market access and better intellectual property enforcement. You know, coordinated measures with the European allies and Asian allies is, is something I think the Biden administration is going to be very eager to do, given you know, yeah. the expected approach on multilateralism. Tell us of your top risks of Asia and of Washington. John Lieber, your view off of what you and Dr. Bremer have wrought. 
you know, I think the top risk that we've highlighted in the U.S. this year is what we've called the asterisk presidency, where you've got Joe Biden, who's been, you know, duly elected president of the United States, yet the legitimacy of that presidency is rejected by a large chunk of the 74 million voters that support President Trump. And the reason it's rejected is because President Trump's out there spinning conspiracy theories and claiming there was fraud in the election, none of which has been borne out by the facts, but it's not going to stop a large chunk of the American population thinking that Biden is not a legitimate president. That's going to play out today at the certification of the Electoral College in Congress, where Republican members of the House and Senate are going to object. And all of that's going to build to this legitimization of the Biden presidency. And this won't be the first time we've seen this. We had people who said, you know, Bush was not my president. We said that Obama was, you know, usurping the presidency because he was actually a, you know, born in Kenya and whatever bizarre lies they wanted to put out there. And we had a lot of Democrats delegitimizing President Trump through the Russian conspiracy. So this delegitimization of the presidency is a function of political polarization in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it's going to make it really hard for Biden to do anything on a bipartisan basis. John Lieber, thank you so much. We don't even have time to get to his relationship with Senator McConnell, his history with a senator from Kentucky. A busy day. John Lieber, thank you so much with your Razor Group. She is in Atlanta, and yes, she's watching the political storm, but mostly she is focused on the extraordinary pandemic that we are all living. Jody Guest is with Emory University, her leadership at Rollins School of Public Health, not only on the fancy word epidemiology, but by getting the word out. Her teaching awards speak volumes about yell loudly and get this fixed right now. Dr. Guest, thank you so much for joining us. Peter Hotez of Baylor Medicine was so upset yesterday about the slowness of the vaccine. What do we need to do to make you and Dr. Hotez happier about getting this vaccine out there? I think that there are two things. It's so important to get this vaccine out. First, we need to make sure that the American population and everyone around the globe trusts that this vaccine is the right thing to do for them. And so that's one issue. And then the other is the logistics of a rollout of a vaccine strategy that we've just never seen the likes of to try to vaccinate the entire globe almost um, at the exact same time. And so that's logistically a massive challenge that we've not yet tackled. My experience of the philanthropy, and I mentioned Bill and Melinda Gates and what they've done for microbiology and virology as well, or frankly for public officials, is a rollout of a medical solution takes money. Is that all this is about? I think it's money. Um, In the United States, the states individually are responsible for vaccine rollout, and they weren't um, given enough money to staff correctly. And And the leeway of time to plan this was not super long. And so um, while they were trying to test and control the virus in the state, uh, we also needed to be putting together a very big infrastructure for rollout of vaccine. And so we're behind on that part. I do think that once it starts working well, you'll see it exponentially pick up in its speed and efficiency. And we're all really hopeful and waiting for that. Jody, I I look at, you know, and this is a delicate question, folks, and I say this with great respect to all the people that have helped us on surveillance during this pandemic. Is there an arch medical timidity now that we're so worried about risk and the secondary and tertiary risk to a process that we're literally afraid to roll out a vaccine and put the needle in our arms? 
I think that the science communication about this vaccine has not been always positive and has not been as straightforward as we needed to have a lot of trust consistently across all um, communities in the United States with this vaccine. And I think that that's really where we're seeing some timidity, to use your word, coming from. And we do need to work on that. Is there, for a pro like you, and you've seen it all, is there a, is there a tangible shift from a Trump administration to the Biden administration? Or is that just wistful thinking by the medical community? I don't think it's wishful thinking. I think that so far what we've seen is some incredible public health folks being put in place who we know and trust and know not only to be wonderful public health leaders, but also really incredible science communicators. And that is what we need out in front of everyone, are really straightforward, one consistent message about what we're talking about with this vaccine and how important it is for all of us to have trust in this and to make the right decision for us personally, but that it's going to take a large percentage of us to want <clears throat> to take this vaccine and then get it to get right. back to our, our normal life that we all want. Jody, you are in Atlanta. I want you to defend right now Atlanta 30341, which is the CDC. Folks, a million years ago, it was my fondest hope to possibly get a job someday at CDC. They have had a tough couple years. Defend the institution you know so well. Oh, they're incredible minds are there. They have not um, been um, as vocal as we would like about this pandemic, but that is not because they're not doing good work. That's because public health has been made so bipartisan and CDC has been caught in the middle of that. There are incredible people who've consistently done wonderful work during this pandemic at the CDC, and we're hearing from them again, and we're about to have an incredible leader at the CDC, and um, we're really excited to have them leading us again through this pandemic, as they should be. Dr. Guest, thank you so much. My advice is steer clear of politics today. From Atlanta and Emory University, Jody Guest joins us uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.